Do let's begin. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. It is great to see everybody. So, this week's Torah portion is Devarim and Deuteronomy. We're going to, I'm muting everybody online. You can jump in when you have a question. So, what we're doing is exploring the first portion of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what does Deuteronomy mean? Can't even say it, let alone <laughs> give it a definition. What does Deuteronomy mean? What does do? Know what devarim means. What is devarim? Words. Words. Such an easy word in English, right? Words. But that's not what it is in, in, uh, in, in the fancy explanation. Deuteronomy is a second teaching. Something along those lines. Don't quote me on that. But it's like, du- like um, duet, duet, right? So it's like two. Deuteronomy means second ronomy. Which is basically, which is basically, um, along the lines of a second teaching, a reiteration of the law in the language of our sages. It's called Mishnah Torah, which is the repetition of the law. So that's just a little bit of context, a little bit of what's going on. Tonight's topic is going to be all about true love, understanding what is love, what is true love, and sometimes what's What's really the best is not always the easiest approach. The best is not always easiest, and easiest is not always the best. Would you guys agree with that? Yes, thumbs up. Yes. In person, you could say yes. Also, right? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's the crux of tonight's class. Let's jump in to our conversation. So we begin with the opening of our Torah portion, the opening of Devarim, which is Moses' final address to the people. So the last 37 days of his life, Moses gathers the people day in and day out, and he addresses them, and he encourages them, and he rebukes them, and he does all sorts of things to try to make sure that they will stay on the straight and narrow as they continue on without him. Remember, Moses will not enter the promised land. Moses is not going to enter the land of Israel. So he needs to make sure that they have all the inspiration that they require, that they have all of the guidance that they need to carry on faithfully without him. So I want to begin. Um, I'm going to share the screen. Everyone here has, a, has um, a copy of the text. I'm going to share my screen online so that we are all on the same page. Okay, we're on page, for the record, we're on page um, 37, and live and in person, Donna, I will ask you to please read text 1A. All right, but read it loudly so that everybody can hear it online as well. All right. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on that side of the Jordan in the desert, in the plain opposite the the Reed Sea. Reed Sea, yeah. <laughs> Between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Shatzerot and Dizaha. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadash Barnea. It came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him regarding them. Okay, so that's the Torah's introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. That's the opening few verses to the book of Deuteronomy, book of Deuteronomy, opening three verses. And he essentially says that at a certain location, on the, on the 
outside of Israel, on the on, on the eastern side of Israel, um, outside the Jordan. Um, yeah, on the other side of the Jordan River. So that is where Moses spoke to the people and he began his address. I need to explain a few things. Number one, very important. Number one, Moses rebukes the people. Why does he rebuke them? I mentioned this uh, parenthetically a moment ago, but let me elaborate on this right now. Moses rebukes the people because part of, uh, part of ensuring that somebody's on the correct path is to correct them, right? So I'll give you an example. Imagine you're teaching someone how to drive. Anybody have that experience teaching someone how to drive? Yes, it happens sometimes that adults have to teach kids how to drive. Yes, yes, I wish this on no one. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a process. Okay, so how does it work? So they get into the car, you get into the car, they get behind the wheel, and you're like, what am I doing? I should have hired somebody. But then, okay, but then you're, you, you stay on because that's, uh, you're not going to chicken out now. You're not going to jump out of the car. Huh? Because you're a parent. Because you're the parent. You got an adult, right? You got a, someone's got an adult here, and it's got to be you. So, and, and, and they start driving. And um, I remember the first time I drove, my grandmother was teaching me, and, um, and I, it was an old station wagon. My mother can remember, hey, mom, good to see you. So um, I, I <laughs> it was like an Oldsmobile, a white Oldsmobile station wagon. And I literally put it into reverse. This is before you had to put on the brake to sh change gears. You know, that's like a relatively new thing. Yes, am I right with this, or was it just a broken car? No. The great white whale, we call it. The great white, white whale. whale. I don't know why it sounds like a tongue twister. Yeah, so basically, I don't know what it was. This is my recollection. I could be wrong. At the end of the day, I was only 12 then, so I could be joking, guys. Joking about that. Joking. Seriously. All right, so um, you got to keep up with the jokes. So basically, I put it into reverse, and immediately it goes back. Hits the car behind me. That was it. First introduction to driving. Bumps the car. Don't worry, it didn't cause any damage. It was, after all, on Phillips Avenue, like a very small street. But anyway, the bottom line is that uh, that was my introduction. So imagine you're in a car, yeah, and, and, and they're driving, they're the new driver, you're the adult, you're adulting, you're in the passenger seat, you know, you're kind of holding on to anything that, you know, you can for, for a grip, and they start veering off the road. What are you going to say? Watch yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're going to scream, exactly. You got to, right, so you'll... Something's going to happen, but you're going to want to correct them. Why don't we correct people in real life, like in other situations? Because somebody might say, that's rude. Who are you to correct? But when you're the adult, when you're, when you're you know, it's your car, you paid for it. It's your insurance. It's your kid. It's your body. It's your life. So you're going to make sure that they're not driving you off the road. Is that fair? It's fair. fair. It's fair. Moses was invested in the people. If you love someone, you're going to correct them. Not out of anger. Not out of... Um, you know, any negative emotion, but simply out of care and concern. For them, for you, for the car, for the innocent bystanders that are standing on the sidewalk, whatever it is, you're concerned and therefore you want to correct. Moses rebukes because Moses loves. The Torah says, This is in Leviticus. Vayikra. Rebuke, rebuke your fellow. It also says, you have to love your fellows yourself. And our sages say that the only fair, the only, more than fair, the only valid premise from which to rebuke is from a place of love. So if you don't love, don't rebuke, because your rebuke is only going to be shouting. No need to shout. No one listens anyway. Right? But if you love, then you can rebuke, because your rebuke is not rebuke, like chastisement. It's correction. And correction is good. 
All right, so my driving example notwithstanding, basically Moses, these last 37 days of his life, so the book of uh, Devarim, book of Deuteronomy begins on the first of, the timeline is the first day of Shvat, it ends with the seventh of Adar, 37 days later, begins the first of Shvat, ends on the day of his passing, so for those 37 days, he speaks to them, and sometimes he reminds them of past mistakes. And so our sages tell us that this first verse, th these first verses that we mentioned over here, are subtle rebukes. I'm going to put it back up on the screen, but everyone here has a copy. So let me share this again. Okay, take a look at this. So they were on the side of the Jordan, and then it says in the desert. Well, they weren't really in the desert, but that's a reference to when the Jews were complaining and said, oh, why did God bring us to the desert to die? We would have rather stayed in Egypt. All right, that was one complaint. So Moses reminds them subtly of like, when they quetched. And then it says in the plain opposite the reeds, I'm going through this verse, by the way, this opening verse of, of Deuteronomy, text 1a. Um, the plain opposite the reed sea, well, what happened, oh, sorry, in the plain. What happened in the plain? Well, that was the sin with the, um, uh, with the idolatry of serving the pa'ar um, and uh, the, the immorality with the daughters of Midian. That just ha recently happened um, in the story, in the narrative. Um, then we have the reed sea. What happened at the reed sea? This was when the Jews complained, when they got to the sea and they were trapped between the Egyptians and the, Red, and the Reed Sea, and they said, God, there weren't enough graves in Egypt. You had to take us here to drown us in the sea. This is before the sea split. So that was another complaint. And then Paran and Tophel and Lavan, that refers to other things, complaints about the manna. That also refers to the sin of the spies. Chatzerot um, refers to the sin of Korach and Dizahav which literally means a lot of gold, refers to the sin of the golden calf. The point is, and this is what I want to point out, that Moses, in this opening verse, is literally chastising the Jewish people by referencing, very briefly referencing, various occasions on which the Jewish people angered God, rebelled against God, criticized God, or challenged God, um, didn't believe in God, and Moses is reminding them, don't do this, don't make the same mistake. Those were mistakes. Every time it didn't end so well, so don't do it again. All right, that's point number one. Everybody with me so far? Yes? Okay. Now, the second point that I want to point out is on the second verse. It says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, but actually before we do that, hold on, you know what, Donna, please read text 1b because everything that I just told you about the subtle rebuke is found in Rashi text 1b. So Donna, please read nice and loud. Since these are words of rebuke, and he, Moses, enumerates here all the places where they angered the omnipresent, therefore it makes no explicit mention of the incidents in which they transgressed, but rather merely alludes to them by mentioning the names of the places out of respect for Israel. So out of respect, and I don't actually, I'm not crazy about that translation, because I feel like the syntax is not exactly like 100% um, clear. It means that out of respect for the Jewish people, he chastises them, he criticizes, but only does it by way of illusion and not, in other words, hinting to them and not like, you guys did this wrong, you guys did that wrong. Again, it's not about anger, not about berating. It's kind of like, you know, getting back to my driving example, it's kind of like where you, um, the next time you get into the car, right, you tell your kid, uh, let's, not, uh, let's not do the old squirrel hill, right? That's the neighborhood in Pittsburgh. But like, that, huh? No, it's not shaming. I mean, yeah, it could be shaming if the intention, if, if 
if it's coming from a negative place and it's being said in a negative way, then absolutely could be shaming. It's like, oh, you remember you did this wrong, oof, right? And then you get, and then the other party gets embarrassed. But when it's coming from a place of love and concern, then it's it's simply out of correction, right? And and by the way, the the difference between correction and shaming, a really fine line, and uh, we get it wrong very often, right? We, I think the one who is delivering the message can easily get it wrong um, and uh, lead to negative consequences. Okay, but back to our narrative. So in this opening verse, so Moses is alluding to the places where the Jewish people kind of uh, didn't do exactly what they needed to do, and that caused some, some havoc in the, in the journey over the last 40 years, um, wh- where they're up to right now. And then Moses said something else. I'm going to put the screen up one more time so that you can look back to text 1a. Everyone else in, in the room, also please take a look at that, that middle paragraph, where Moses says is it, a, is, it is an 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. What does that mean? So let me translate. Let me translate this. So Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, where they got the Torah. Now, why is it called Horeb? That's... It's another, that's, that's another conversation, but it has um, other names to it, right? There are multiple names for a mountain. So this is Sinai. It's also Horeb. It's the same mountain. In the Hebrew, by the way, it's Horeb, and uh, it's the same thing as, as Mount Sinai where they got the Torah. So it's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai by way of Mount Seir, another mountain range, to Kadesh Barnea. Now, Kadesh Barnea is where the Jewish people were perched, where they were positioned, where they were stationed, when the spies were dispatched to check out the land of Israel. So again, just a quick review of um, biblical history, Jewish history. So there was the Exodus from Egypt. I'm not going to giving you the dates. I'm just gonna, giving you the, the major events. The Exodus, then the sea split, then the Jews got the Torah, and then they sinned with the golden calf, and then they built the Mishkan, the tabernacle. They were forgiven. They got a second set of tablets. All was fine. Okay. Then they were told to travel. And they did a quick travel. And they got to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And in Kadesh Barnea, that's when they were poised to make a beeline to the land of Israel. The people requested to send spies to scout out the land. The spies went in. They came back with a negative report. The people panicked. And at that point, God says, all right, 40 years of wandering. This generation is clearly not ready to enter, so it's going to be wandering for you guys and then come back in 40 years. And now it's 40 years later, and Moses is speaking to this generation who is about to go into the land finally um, and reminding them like what not to do. Fine. Every, story makes sense? Yes? Okay. So Moses says in this verse, it is an 11 days journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. Fine. Good. He's just breaking it down how long it took. But that's not how long it took. How do I know this? Because Rashi explains, Rashi explains, based on our sage's commentary, that it actually was supposed to be an 11 days journey, but miraculously, it took them only three days. It took them only three days. And the reason why it took them only three days to go from the, the Sinai area to Kadesh Barnea, the reason is because God was trying to expedite the entrance into the land of Israel. God says, all right, you got the Torah, you built the Mishkan, the tabernacle, you're ready to go, let's do this fast. And so God expedited their journey to get to Kadesh Barnea, from which they were supposed to make a beeline into the land of Israel, expedited from an 11-day journey to a 3-day journey. Now that's cool, right? That is a cool thing. Called Kefitzat Haderach, kind of the shortening of the path. I don't know if it was a miracle or just, you know, quick, quick movement, but it sounds a little bit miraculous. Let's do together text number 
two. All right, let's do text number two, pulling it up on the screen. And this is where Rashi talks about the three-day journey. Okay, um, let's see. Who would like to read? Doreen. Moses said to them, see what you caused? There's no shorter route from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea than the way through Mount Seir. And even that's a journey of 11 days. But you miraculously traverse it in three days. That's the extent to which the Shekhinah exerted herself to hasten your arrival to the land of Canaan. But because you sinned, God made you travel around Mount Seir for 40 years. Okay, thank you. So basically Moses was saying to them, look, look what happened because of the sin of the spies. God, it should have taken 11 days. But miraculously, it was a miracle, right? Rashi says straight up it was a miracle, right? At least the brackets say that, right? It was a miracle that they traversed it, that you traversed it in three days. And that, that's the extent that Shekhinah exerted herself. You're probably wondering, who's she? Okay, Shekhinah is a name for the... Shekhinah is the phrase that's used for the divine presence, right? The divine imminent presence of God. And it's, 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 a feminine, it's a feminine expression. So usually we say God as usually the pronoun is he when it comes to God. But with the Shekhinah, it's a feminine phrase. So it's she. Anyway, but God is, is not a gender. God is beyond gender. These are just phrases that we have that are imperfect. So it's, it's not, neither he nor she. It's, uh, it's the divine energy. But the Shekhinah has a feminine quality to it. It's the indwelling without getting into the details. The point is... God invested in the journey to make it that much faster. From an 11-day journey to three days, which means that God really wanted this to happen, and then what did you do? You messed it up for 40 years. You had this in three days. You were ready to go, and then what happens? The sin of the spies, and you kick it down the road for 40 years. That's the travesty. That's the, um, the disaster that is the sin of the spies. And that's what Moses was saying to them about the 11-day journey. He says it was an 11-day journey. It didn't take 11 days. It only took three days, and you still messed it up. Okay. Again, that's done with love, right? Not, not uh, berating for the sake of, of, of beating down, but rather to remind so as to correct. Which leads us into the great debate of today's class. If you saw my email from earlier today, or a few hours ago, I sent an email saying that tonight's class is going to be about a great debate between a heretic. I call him a heretic. You might not want to call him a heretic. It doesn't, doesn't make a difference. But somebody who is not so much of a believer and a rabbi who is a believer. This story is recorded, this debate is recorded in the Talmud. And the debate centers on this last point that we just made about the 11-day journey, the turn to three-day journey, etc., so let me explain the debate. Um, the Talmud says that there was a rabbi whose name was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you may be familiar with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He was one of the greatest uh, rabbis of the Second Temple era and beyond. In fact, when the Romans were besieging Jerusalem, and the handwriting was on the wall that Jerusalem was going to fall, the temple was going to fall, and, and it was not going to end well. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakeh smuggled himself out of the holy city of Jerusalem to meet with the Roman general Vespasian, who ultimately became the Roman emperor, Vespasian. 
but he was then the general at the front in the siege against Jerusalem. So Rabbi Yochanan and Zakeh had to smuggle himself out of Jerusalem. Why? Because on the inside, there were zealots who said, we are going to fight to the death and no one can make a peace treaty with the enemy. Are you with me on this? There were Jews in Jerusalem that said, there's no treaties to be made with the Romans. They're our enemy. We cannot sign a... That's what they call the zealots. Because they were like, we're going to fight to the death. No moderates, no moderation, no pacifism, no peace treaties, nothing. We're, go, we're fighting to the death. And the rabbis were not, against, were, were not for that. The rabbis were against that. The zealots were not the rabbis, not the sages. But they were out... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Outmaneuver, but really it's more like out, um, outzealoted. I mean, these guys were, they were, they were violent, and these guys, the zealots burnt down storehouses of grain and food in Jerusalem. Jewish food. Why? To make everybody have to, to, make everybody have to fight the Romans. It's, it's very twisted, the maneuverings, whatever. This is why it says that the infighting did us in. More than the Romans, it was the infighting that did us in. Back to our story. So Rabbi Yochanan Zaki had a he had to pretend that he was dead. Some of you may know this story. The Talmud tells the story. He went inside a coffin, and they smuggled him out to be buried outside the city. This whole thing, this whole ruse. He was really alive, obviously. And he spoke to the Roman general, and he asked that when he destroys the temple, that he should at least spare some places in Israel to rebuild a center of Jewish scholarship. And Yavne was the city that was, uh, that was requested and it was granted. And thus, Judaism continued to, to flourish and, or to continue going on. But the story that, that we're going to tell from the Talmud takes place with this rabbi, Rabbi Yochem and Zaka. Now, there was a group of people in his era that were known as the Baitusim. In English, it's like Bothusians, but I don't know what a Bothusian is. I know what a Baitusi is. A Baitusi is someone along the lines of the Karaites. You know the Karaites? Right? They're orange. You put them into sushi. No, those are carrots. Sorry. Uh, that was a joke, guys. All right. I'm just checking in, making sure everybody's with me. Right? Just because we have a, we have a, we have a um, hybrid class doesn't mean I can't make my jokes. Huh? We can laugh out loud. We can even laugh out loud. Right, exactly. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. Okay. So um, the carrots. The carrots rejected. Yeah, the oral. So. Yes, yeah, thank you, Adam. Yes, who are the Karaites? The Karaites were those who rejected the, the legitimacy of the oral Torah. They said, if it's in the five books, we're good. If it's not rabbinic interpretation, <laughs> I'm sure they did these air quotes back then, forget about it, right? If it's in the Torah, sure. If it's written down from Moses, yeah. But if it's the rabbis said and the rabbis interpreted, no way. By the way, this is not my position. I'm just explaining their position. Um, as a rabbi... Yeah, there's a Karait shul in California. There's a Karait shul in California? Yeah. Yes, there's an operating Karait shul. I checked it out. Yeah, they probably sit... Only, only on the internet. So Doreen is asking here, do they sit in the dark on Shabbat? Because that's kind of... Uh, I, would, I would think yes. That's probably what they do, yeah. Because they're, they're literalists. And they don't, like when the Torah says you're not allowed to have fire on Shabbat, so we understand that the rabbinic interpretation is you can't light fire, but you can, keep, you can keep lights on, you can keep fire. But they said, nope, no, no fire, no fire. So they would sit in the dark and eat cold food, which is why we specifically have a chalant on Shabbos Day that was put on 
pursuant to some conversation that we've had recently here. You put it on before Shabbat and it stays on, it stays hot until Shabbat day. One reason is because it tastes good. The other one is to specifically debunk the Karite position that you can't have any hot heat or, or light or enjoy anything on Shabbat. Anyway, but that's one example. Getting back to our story. So the Karites were anti-oral law, which I'm going to get into more of like what the oral law is, what the written law is. We'll get to there soon. The Baitusim, or Bothusians, were another sect that pretty much was aligned with the Karites, also not believing in the oral tradition. Now, I don't know how deeply I want to get into the background on this. You know, it says that you start counting the Omer on the day after Shabbat, which our sages interpret to mean not after Shabbat Shabbat, but Shabbat is a reference to a day of rest, not the day of rest, but a day of rest, which means after day one of Passover, which means you start counting the Omer always on day two of Passover, right? The first day of the Omer is always the second day of Passover. But the Bothusians said, no, the Baitusim said, no, it says the day after Shabbat, it means the day after Shabbat. So always Sunday is day one of the Omer. So whenever Passover is, let's say Passover falls out on a Wednesday, you do not start, count, start counting the Omer on Thursday. You wait till the next Sunday, because it has to be the day after Shabbat. And they took Shabbat literally, because they were the literalists. So um, they would always do it on Sunday. And thus, Shavuot was always, always would fall out on a Sunday. So that was the, the, the Bothusian, the Baitusi position that Shavuot, the holiday of Shavuot, which is seven weeks after Passover, which commemorates the giving of the Torah, is always on a Sunday. That's what they said. And the rabbi said, it's not always on a Sunday. Sometimes it's Sunday. Sometimes it's Monday. Sometimes, it could be any day of the week, right? Depends on when, when Passover is. You go the next day, and then seven weeks later, boom, there's Shavuot. All right, I hope this makes sense. Does this make sense? Yes? All right, so let me bring up this text. And, and, and those of you in person, please turn to page 40 in text number 3. And let's do this together. This is very important. It's a very important text. In fact, it is so important, and I may want to add some commentary that I'm going to read it myself. Text number 3. Here we go. The Bothusians. Oh, here it says Bothusians. All right. The Bothusians. This is the sect, one of the sects that did not believe in the oral tradition in rabbinic interpretation. The Bothusians would say that the festival of Shavuot always occurs on a Sunday. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the great rabbi, joined the discussion with them and said to them, Fools, from where have you derived this? Nobody answered him except for one elderly man who was prattling at him. And he said, prattling. It's a word that you don't find often, at least in my, the books that I read. And he said the following, this Bothusian, this elder Bothusian said to the rabbi, Moses, our teacher, was a lover of the Jewish people. And he knew that Shavuot, in the land of Israel, is only one day. Therefore, he arose and established it on the day after Shabbat, i.e. Sunday, so that the Jewish people would enjoy themselves for two days. So this is the svar, this is the rationale that this elder Bothusian gave to Rabbi Yochanan Metzaki, who challenged and said, why in the world would it be on Sunday of all days? So this guy says, I have an idea. I'll tell you why. Because Shavuot is only one day. So imagine if it's only one day in the diaspora, we have two days, but it's in Israel, it's one day. So imagine if you had just a Tuesday holiday. Ugh, it's too standalone. So therefore, Moses, because of his great love for us, he attached it, he appended it always to Sunday. So you have Shabbat. Sorry, he appended it to Shabbat. So you have Shabbat as a day of rest. And then once a year, when Shavuot comes, it's always on Sunday in the Bothusian understanding so that you would have a two, day, two days of rest in a row. All right. So the Jewish people would enjoy themselves for two days. Now the rabbi says, Rabbi Yochanan and Zaka responded by citing this verse. 
Our verse from our Torah portion about the 11-day journey. Remember the 11-day journey? Yeah? yeah? Yes? Good. Take a look. Yeah. Rabbi Yochanan Zaki responded by saying the following. It is an 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by way of Mount Seir. So listen to this. It's an 11-day journey, but it took three days. But because of the sin, how long did it really take to get into the land of Israel? Not 11 days, not three days, 40 years, right? And if, so look at, the, look at what the rabbi's logic is. If Moses, our teacher, was a lover of the Jewish people, right? You're saying Moses loved the Jewish people, so he gave them a two-day holiday. Really, Moses loves the people. If Moses really loved the people, why did he delay them in the wilderness for 40 years? <laughs> You're telling me he loved the people? He delayed them for 40 years. What kind of love is that? Okay. That's God's idea. Hold on That's one God. second. I, yeah, oh, good question. Adam's like, hold on, that wasn't Moses, that was God. Good. That's question number one. Question number two is, you know, it's a little weird, this debate, because if you break down the debate, what's happening? The Bothusian is saying, Moses loves us. And the rabbi is saying, Moses loves us? Are you kidding me? This is the debate? How did, how did they take these sides? How are they on opposites? How in the world are you getting the Bothusian, who's anti the rabbis, anti-rabbi, who's now saying, team, who's now team Moses, and the rabbi, who's supposed to be team rabbi, anti-Moses, taking an anti-Moses position. Are you with me on this? Yes? I'm going to break this down one more time. Right? So the Bothusian says that, the Bothusians said that, that Shavuot was always on a Sunday. Rabbi Yochum Zaki said, why in the world would it be on a Sunday? I, I, we believe it could be on any day, depending on the calendar. No, it's always on a Sunday. Why on a Sunday? So this one guy says, I'll tell you why. Because Moses loved the people, and he thought they should have a two-day celebration instead of a one-day Shavuot celebration, Shabbat, and then roll straight into Shavuot once a year. When Shavuot comes around, it should always be you know, packaged together with Shabbat. And the rabbi says, oh, you think Moses loved us? You think, Because oh, Moses loved us. He wanted to give us a two-day holiday, two days of rest. Moses loved us. Are you kidding me? He put us in a holding pattern for 40 years. So Adam's question number one is, Moses did that. It was God that did that. So, Didn't God also set a day for Shavuot? Yeah, and God also said, but that's the debate as to, what, as to how we understand that verse. But how, how we understand the verse regarding the counting of the Omer and, and Passover is really the origin of it. But this is where this elderly Bothusian is giving a rationale for it. He's saying, I believe that the literal verse says this. What's the rationale for it? Because Moses loves us. And the rabbi says, the, ra the rationale is Moses loves us. He took us on a 40-year teul, a 40-year um, um, uh, hike around, around the mountain range, right? Because he loves us. Are you kidding me? So again, the, the weird thing is, my question is, is how is it that now you have these people crossing positions? You have the... Um, the hater, right, hater's going to hate, who's now talking about Moses' love, and the lover hating on Moses. Like, how does this make sense? The Bothusian is saying that Moses loves us, and the rabbi is saying Moses hated us. I mean, he didn't say that directly, but he asked it. I'm going to put it up again on the screen so that everyone can see what he says, right? This is literally what he says. Rabbi Yochum like I said, if it's an 11-day journey, and if Moses, our teacher, was a lover of the Jewish people, why did he delay them in the wilderness for 40 years? Right? If he was a lover, what does that imply? That he's not. Right? If he, was, if he was a lover, then why did he do this? That implies that the, the, the implication is that he wasn't a, such a lover of the Jewish people. So, he knew we weren't ready to go in. Did it because he knew we weren't ready to go in? Fine, but, but the bottom line is... That is out of love. That is out of love, sure. But that's, it seems to imply from this dialogue that Rabbi Yochanan and Zake is taking 
a, an approach with Moses that Moses wasn't necessarily like totally, you know, team Jewish people. And, and the other guy, the elderly Bethusian, seems to be pro-Moses and pro-love. And Mark. yes. Hey, Mark. Wasn't there still a pillar of fire which they followed every day? There was a pillar of fire. Are they so, so to me, this is a silly argument. Moses didn't cause the pillar of fire. Yeah, that's what Adam said. Yeah, for sure. It was God, 100%. It was God who delayed them for 40 years. Yeah. I, I get this. But, it, but either way, in the context of this relatively silly argument, the rabbi is essentially seeming to imply that Moses did not love us. I mean, he could have said any number of things, but his choice to answer this Bothusian who said that Moses loved us, so he made it a two-day holiday, he says, did Moses really love us? Didn't he take us on a journey for 40 years? And that's the rabbi who said this, not the Bothusian. The rabbi is the one who introduced this idea that Moses took us on a 40-year journey. So your question really is on Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. Did he not know? Did he not read the Torah? Did he not know that God led them, that God delayed them for 40 years? Did he not know that God led them with a pillar of fire? Did he not know that it was all guided by God? How did Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai not know this? That's the question, right? That's a valid question. Um, and that's part of what we're discussing. Morning, yeah. I have a the whole generation. So Marnie's question is, how many people died in the four years? The whole generation, except for a few people. Moses, who was about to pass away in 37 days. Joshua, who's going to be the next Jewish leader. And Caleb, Caleb. So That's it. So offspring, These are the kids. So maybe to get fresh blood in. Yeah, for sure. But again, our question is more of a technical one. I don't know if you want to call it technical. He would go to God and plead on their behalf. Doesn't do it this time. He accepts the fact that God wants them to wander for 40 years. So you're saying Moses accepted the fact, so that makes him complicit in, in the 40-year um, sentence, if you will. Every other time that there was a, a I hear you. I hear you. So maybe Moses was complicit because he allowed it to go. Okay. I, listen, we're going to have a very... No, he tried to stop the Yeah, no, he tried to stop... Okay, good. Listen, it, it's it's... Again, if we, want to re if we want to rewind, just just to make sure that we're clear on what text three was, we have a Bothusian and a rabbi. The Bothusian says, I believe Shavuot is always on Sunday because Moses loved us and he wanted to give us a two-day holiday, two days off from work. And the rabbi says, Moses loved us, then why did he take us on a 40-year journey? You can answer from today to tomorrow why there was a 40-year delay. But the rabbi said, did Moses love us? He took us on a 40-year journey. Those are the words that are puzzling. How does a rabbi say that, and what does he mean by that? Are you with me on that? How does Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai say that? It wasn't Moses. It was God. And that doesn't imply that Moses... So that, these are the questions we need to answer. In fact, and it's not my question. This is the rabbi's question. Let's take a look at text number four. Let's take a look at text number four. I'm sharing my screen once again. Um, Bert, please read text number four. Take it away. How can it be that the Batista, Batista, Batusi, what to see, what Batusi, is one whose premise is that Moses, our teacher, was a lover of the Jewish people? Well, Rabbi Yochum ben Zaka said, if Moses, our teacher, was a lover of the Jewish people, why did he keep him in the desert for 40 years? 
as if to question that premise. Right? So the Rebbe says, the core, the core, the big question here is that you have the Baitusi who says Moses loved us. And the rabbi says, if he loved us, why did he keep them in the desert for 40 years? Implying that he disagrees that Moses loved us. How do we understand how the rabbi could question the premise that Moses loved us? That's the question. And again, we can get into the details of why the Jews were in the desert, had to wander for 40 years, but that doesn't answer the question that the Rebbe is asking here. The question is, in the debate with the Baitusi, the Baitusi, who's anti-rabbinic scholars, is saying Moses loved us. And the rabbi is saying, did Moses really love us? That's literally the, the, the debate. That's literally the, what, what comes out from this. How does that make any sense? So to understand this, we need to go on a bit of a journey. Okay, we need to go on a... Oh, Richard, hold on. The Zoom people cannot hear the on-site people at all. Okay, well, Richard, there's a solution for that. Right? Come here. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so what I'm going to do is... Okay, not a problem. Message, message um, received. I am going to, I will read the text. Okay, now, Azoi, now let's, let's get into some, into some perspective on this. To understand this, we're going to go, let me take you on a journey. It's not going to be a 40-year journey um, because we only have like, uh, you know, 16, 17 minutes left. So I'll take you on a quick journey into understanding what is the difference between the written law and the oral law. What is the difference between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Peh? So, this short explanation is like this. Because remember I told you the, the Bothusians, the Baitusim, did not believe in the oral law. Well, what, what is the oral law? What is the written law? The five books of Moses, right, right behind me, the Torah scrolls, written law. The books of Scripture, the other books of Scripture, like the book of Joshua, Judges, Kings, etc., Psalms, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, all written Torah. But Medrash, Talmud, Mishnah, Talmud, all that, others, commentaries, all the oral law. So what's the difference? The difference, you, we can, we've had courses. We've had courses on, on understanding the evolution from written law to oral law, six-week courses, nine hours of study. Certainly, I'm not going to give you everything in, in these few minutes. But here's what I want to share with you. The written law is precise and exact from God, which means that it's kind of like, a, not kind of, it is a divine communication that is inscript, in, encrypted in very specific letters. Very, a very specific code of communication. So that's why any Torah scroll that you'll find around the world, doesn't matter what synagogue you go into, right? Whether it's Ashkenaz or Sfar today or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, you'll find the Torah scroll, it's going to have the same exact writing, the same exact script, letter for letter, word for word, chapter for chapter, etc. Same scrolls, untouched, unchanged. The letters are holy. It's a, it's a code from God almost. It's like divine code. But the problem is, problem, the challenge is, it's very difficult to operate based on what it says in Torah. For example, you guys familiar with tefillin? Yeah, tefillin, phylacteries. In English, we call them phylacteries. I don't know that anybody knows that word any better than tefillin. But where are phylacteries made? 
in a phylactery factory, obviously. But then, which is the joke, back to our story. So tefillin, yeah, black boxes with leather straps. So the black boxes are placed on the arm and on the head. And if you've ever put on tefillin or seen anybody with tefillin, you'll, you notice the tefillin, the arm box goes on the bicep near the, near the heart. So if you're right, it goes on the left arm and then it turns into the faces of the heart. And the one on the head goes on the top of the head, not top, middle, but like top, front, like the front of the tefillin is by aligned with the hairline, um, or at least where the hairline used to be. If the hairline is not exactly where it once was, you don't keep on moving the tefillin back. <laughs> right. It's like, oh my gosh, there's no, there's, there's no room for tefillin anymore. No. You just go where the original hairline, where one remembers the original hairline to be. And, um, and, that's, and then it's centered between the eyes. But you know what it says in, in the Torah about tefillin? Who knows what it says in Torah about tefillin? Where, where do you put tefillin on? In the, in the, what, what does it say in the Torah? Which locations of the body? Yeah, in the Shema, but in the body. Okay, it's, in the, it's written in the Shema, but it says in the Shema. Huh? In your eyes. On your hand and between your eyes. So you know what the Bothusians used to do? They would put tefillin literally in the palm of their hands. And they would put the tefillin, small tefillin, between their eyes. Remember I told you they were literalists? They're like, oh, it says in your hand. Done. Oh, it says between your eyes. Done. And the rabbis are like, yeah, that's what it says, but Moses told us what it means. Like, oh, we don't believe in commentary. You don't believe in commentary? Then it's ridiculous, right? I mean, Moses got from God not only the script, but also the explanation. They're like, no, we don't want explanation. Just what it says. Literalists. Okay? So that's kind of like what the written law is without the oral law. You can't really operate too well with a written law without an oral law. The problem with the, not the problem, but the, the, what happens with the oral law is that there is some that's tradition passed down from Moses, but a lot of it also is derivation, der, deriving the law from existing law. So you have like the Torah says, okay, in this case, such and such case, should be such and such a law. Well, what happens in a different case? Or what happens when one of the factors is different? So then what do you do? So you have to kind of figure out based on the principles of the law as you understand it, how to apply it to these varying cases. It's kind of like, I'm going to give you an example of Havdil, with the Supreme Court of the United States. So a case comes up, and the Supreme Court says, um, hmm, okay, this has never happened. It's never come to us before. If it came up before, then it, it's a precedent. But this has never come up before, so what do we do? We have to look at existing law, the framework of the law, and try to understand what was the rationale of that law, the original laws, and try to see how that might play out in these new cases. So that's a lot of the Talmud is doing the same thing, essentially. It's saying, okay, the Torah told us, Cases one, two, and three, but now we have case number four. That's not directly discussed. It's similar. It's also dissimilar. It has this element that is similar, this element that's not similar. So what do you think? And the rabbis would say, well, I think that it's most similar to this precedent. And another rabbi says, no, it's not exactly like that. I think it's more similar to this case. You guys with me so far on this? Yeah? You're basically using existing law to derive new laws and to apply it to new cases. And with that, there might be differences of opinion. So what do you do when there are differences of opinion? In halacha, what do you do? Huh? Go to your local rabbi. No, but what did, the, what did they do in the Talmudic era? They voted. 100%. They got together, all the rabbis. They got together. They discussed the topic. They fleshed it out. There was time for discussion and debate. And then they voted. And whatever the majority was, that's it. In fact, the Torah says, my bar mitzvah Torah portion, mishpatim. The book of Exodus. It says that you go after the majority. 
So you go after the majority. You, fo- you f- go after. You follow the majority. So you rule and you follow the majority. But this was completely out of, you know, completely out for, um, for the Bothusians. Bothusians were like voting and, 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 and taking your ideas. Whatever it says, it says. Whatever it doesn't say, it doesn't say. Literally. There is a very interesting, I'm going to skip text 5. There's a very interesting distinction between when we learn the written Torah and when we learn the oral Torah. So the written Torah, again, is more about the divine code. And the oral Torah is more about logical debate. So when it comes to studying Torah, right, there's a blessing that's made, a blessing that's recited before we study Torah. And so the question is how much, like how, when you, in order to do the mitzvah of studying Torah, what do you have to do? So when it comes to the written Torah, all you have to do is read the words, even if you don't understand it. When it comes to the oral Torah, you have to understand it. Why? Because the written Torah is about source code. The oral Torah is about logical understanding. So let me show this to you in, in, in the Code of Jewish Law. Let me pull this up on the screen and let's do this together. This is going to be text number 6a and 6b. Take a look. This is from the, um, from the Alter Rebbe, from the founder of Chabad, Rebbe Shein Zaman of Liadi, Hilcho Tamator in his Code of Jewish Law. So here we go. He says, one who enunciates the words of the written Torah fulfills the mitzvah of Torah study even if he or she does not understand them due to ignorance. Therefore, such a person recites the blessings in the midst of Torah study when he recites verses in the morning and likewise upon being called to the Torah. So again, if you say verses of Torah, of the written Torah, even if you have no idea what it's saying, you have no clue what you're reading, but you recite those verses, you have fulfilled the mitzvah of Torah study if it's the written law. Why? Because when it comes to the written Torah, it's all about what's written. So you say it, you articulate it, you enunciate it, you've done the mitzvah. But when it comes to the oral Torah, it's different. Text 6b, let's continue. The above only applies to the written Torah. In the study of the oral tradition, however, or the oral Torah, reading the words without comprehending them isn't considered study at all. If you study the Talmud and you just read the words of Talmud and you have no idea what it's saying, you have not studied Torah. Why? Because the oral law by definition, the oral Torah by definition, is all about application, understanding, logic, Right, inference, application, etc. The written Torah is kind of like on God's terms, and the oral Torah is on our terms. Does that make sense? Yes? It's, it's like divine code versus practical application. So the written Torah, you don't touch the letters, you don't, you don't, you don't modify. It's like, oh, I think this verse should be written a little bit differently. It's like, you don't touch it. Right? It's the written Torah, it's, it's, it's the source code. You don't touch the source code. And how do you fulfill the study of the source code? You read it. Whether you understand it or you don't understand it, when you say it, you've done it. But when it comes to the oral Torah, there's no mitzvah to read the oral Torah, to enunciate it. You have to understand it. It's all about understanding. It's all about application. It's all about logic. So we have here, it's almost like, we've done this in a lot of classes, like top down and bottom up. Two modalities in relationships, right? Where something is coming from like a top-down modality or a bottom-up modality. Is it about the top or is it about the bottom? So the written Torah is about the top. It's about God. And the oral Torah is about us. It's how we embrace Torah. So now we understand on a much deeper level what the Bothusians were all about. Remember I told you the Bothusians did not accept the oral Torah? 
Why not? It's not because they didn't trust the rabbis. It's much deeper than that. It's because the Bothusians said that Torah is meant to be sacred. Torah is meant to be pure. Torah is meant to be un... What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Un, unfiltered, but unadulterated? Unadulterated. Unadul oh, you guys, are, you guys are reading my mind. I love it. I love it. Unadulterated. Right? Un, untainted by the human mind. It's meant to be, Torah is meant to be put in a glass case, right, in a museum. It's meant to be sacred and perfect and untouched by the human mind. Unfiltered, unadulterated, untainted, unblemished, unmarked by the human mind. Don't let human mind, human logic, mess up the perfection of Torah. In other words, Torah is all about a perfect transcendent reality. It's not practical. It's not about how we live our lives. It's not about transformation of us. It's not about us owning Torah and integrating Torah. It's about, it's like, it's a, it's a lofty, transcendent experience. That's the Judaism that they believed in. Right? They believed in a Judaism and a Torah that was removed from experience. Which is why, by the way, I don't mean to say this parenthetically. I mean to say this with all intentionality. Which is why. When the rabbi argued with the Bethusian about Shavuot, there's a much deeper understanding here. What is Shavuot? The holiday of Shavuot, what does that celebrate? The giving of the Torah. And so the Bethusian says, you know when you celebrate that? Right after Shabbat. Because you know what Shabbat is? It's a day of transcendence. Shabbat is not a day of work and integration. Shabbat is a day of rest. Shabbat is a day of transcendence. And so what do you, how do you follow? So where do you put the day of receiving the Torah, which is also a day of transcendence? You always piggyback that. No, uh, you're right. right. You always connect that with Shabbat. You go from a transcendent day to another transcendent day. Are you with me on what I just said? So the Bothusians said, the Bothusians who believed that Torah was up there. Torah was removed from the human mind. No mind should touch Torah. No mind should, they believed, pervert or try to understand Torah. It, it, it needs to stay in the code, in the source code. No application, no, right, no, don't, don't, don't utilize it. Keep the code, keep it perfect. That's, how, that's what they felt. So in that, in that world view, in that view of Torah, right, Torah as perfect code, so you have to have the day of Torah following the day of Shabbat. Because what is Torah if not transcendence? What is Shabbat if not transcendence? Boom. Transcendence, transcendence. It makes sense. And what does the rabbi say? What did the rabbi say in Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai? What did he say? He says, no, you unmoor it from Shabbat. Yes, sometimes it will fall out on Sunday, but not always. It's not tied into Shabbat. Why? Because it's not about transcendence. Torah was not given for the sake of transcendence. Torah was given for the sake of application, transformation, that we should take it. We should learn it. There's a story that I skipped in text 5. It's a really long story, but I'm going to give you the, the, the short of it. There were rabbis that were arguing about an oven. Rabbis can argue about anything. They were arguing about the halachic status, the legal status of an oven. It was called the Achnai oven. What was the Achnai oven? It's not in the, even if you read the text, it's not, it's not, the whole story is not there. It's just the end of the story. The Achnai oven was an oven that was made of different pieces, like layers of clay that were separated by earth. And the question is, is it considered to be a cohesive unit or separate pieces? Is it considered to be whole or broken because it's not cemented and it's just the layers of loose dirt that, that sandwich the various layers of the oven, 
whatever. And depending on the status of one unit or a broken unit, so that would have halakhic ramifications. And the majority of rabbis said one way, and Rabbi Elazar said another way, and they voted, and Rabbi Elazar was in the minority, so he was ruled, he was voted against. He was ruled, and the ruling was against him. And he said, but I'm right. They said, but we voted. He says, but I'm right, and to prove it to you, um, now I'm just going to go back quickly to the text for my own reference. He said, if, if I'm right, then this carob tree will prove it. And the carob tree moved 100 cubits. It jumped miraculously. Then he said, and they said, we don't, we're unmoved by your miracle. And then he said, all right, if the, if the law is with me, then the stream will prove it. And the stream that was flowing down started flowing upwards. And then he said, um, you know, if I'm right, then let this, the walls of the study hall prove. And the walls started caving in. And the other rabbis said, stop. And they stopped, but they leaned, and the study hall walls were leaning. Um, and then he said, oh, if I'm right, let, let a heavenly voice prove it. And a heavenly voice said, why are you arguing with Rabbi Lazar? He's correct. And Rabbi Yeshua stood on his feet. Uh, I can't not bring it up now after all that. Seriously. All right, this is text five, guys. Um, um, we're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah. Rabbi Yeshua stood on his feet and said, It is written, second to last paragraph, It is not in heaven. Torah is not in heaven. What does that mean? Rabbi Yirmiya said, Since the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, we do not decide the halacha in accordance with the divine voice. For God said at Sinai, You shall follow the majority opinion. Years later, Rabbi Natan encountered Elijah the prophet and said to him, What did the Holy One, Blessed Be, do at that time of this episode? Elijah said to him, The Holy One, Blessed Be, he smiled and said, My children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. In other words, God said, God was smiling up in heaven, saying, my children, they, they beat me. I thought it was like this, but they voted like that. You know, you know why this story is so powerful? Because it literally is the answer to the Bothusians. It's the exact opposite. The Baithusim said, Bothusians said, Torah is meant, it's perfect, it's divine, it's transcendent, it's up there, it's source code, don't touch it. And we believe, I say we, right? What lasts in Judaism, the mainstream Jewish position, which is the rabbinic position is that God gave us the Torah to, for us to work with, for us to understand, for us to vote on, for us to implement in our lives, and to change the world. Torah was not given to put in a museum. Torah was given to change the world. And thus, it's ours. And we vote in the majority. And even if a voice from heaven says we're wrong, this is the majority. And this is what Torah says we should do. Torah itself says we follow the majority. All right, so where does this leave us? So the Bothusian says that Shavuot always follows Shabbat. Transcendence follows transcendence. And the rabbis said, the rabbis said, Rabbi Yochanan said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't follow transcendence. Why? Because Torah is not meant to be transcendent. Torah is meant to be transformative, not transcendent. This, my friends, takes us back to the beginning. And this answers the other piece of the discussion. You see, in an effort for transformation, that is why Moses led us in the desert for 40 years. You see, we typically think of the 40 years of wandering as a punishment. But on a deeper level, on a mystical level, we understand something completely different. The desert is a wasteland. And what happens when you have the Jewish people, three million strong, with a, temp, with a tabernacle, with an ark, with a Torah, with all of the wonderful Jewish um, rituals happening? What happens when the Jewish people are hanging out in the desert for 40 years? What happens? You transform 
a spiritual wasteland, a barren space, into a spiritual oasis. And so it turns out, on a deeper level, that the wandering, in for, uh, for the 40-year wandering was not a punishment. It was not a negative thing. It was a force of positivity and transformation. And it speaks to the purpose of Torah to transform the earth as opposed to remaining in heaven. Are you with me on this? The Bethusians would say, why stay in the desert? Go quickly into Israel. Don't stay in the desert. And the, the other approach, the rabbinic approach, so to speak, is you take the Torah and you bring it into the world to transform deserts into gardens. That's the purpose of Torah. So 40 years wandering is about transformation. So whenever Yochanan ben Zakkai, what his response to the Bothusian, the Bothusian says that clearly um, Shavuot needs to follow Shabbat because transcendence needs to follow transcendence. And the rabbi says, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai says back to him, transcendence, transcendence, are you kidding me? Torah is meant for transformation, which is why Moses took us in the desert for 40 years. Why? to transform, to take Torah, and to use it to transform the world, not to remain somewhere stuck, but for the purpose of transformation. And this is the deepest measure of love. One might say it would have been more loving had Moses taken us quickly into land of, into land of Israel. But that's the easiest path. That's not necessarily the best path. Sometimes what's best for us is the challenge. Sometimes what's best is not the easiest. That's how I started this class. What's easiest is not always best. What's best is not always easiest. In the final analysis, what was best for the Jewish people, what was best for the world, was for them to wander for 40 years. For them to transform the world using the inspiration of Torah, using the guidance of Torah for those 40 years. It wasn't necessarily to go quickly, you know, after three days of journey, right into Israel. And so, what was the deeper message of the wandering? The deeper message of the wandering is that sometimes to accomplish what we need to accomplish, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be our first choice. But like Viktor Frankl said, and I'm paraphrasing, the measure of life is not what we expected from it. It's what we do in response to what life brings at us. It's to do what is expected of us, not what we expected of life. So. This is the deeper message of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh's message. He wasn't saying that Moses didn't love us. Saying, oh, you think Moses loved us? He took us around for 40 years. What Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh is saying, you think Moses loved us and wanted to make it easy for us by giving us a transcendent Torah and having us go into a transcendent land? That's not what Moses wanted. What Moses wanted was the best for us and the implementation of Torah, which is why it took us for 40 years. So in the final analysis, the rabbi wasn't suggesting that Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai didn't love his people. Sorry, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai wasn't suggesting that Moses didn't love his people. He was suggesting that Moses loved the Jewish people, loved Torah, understood what it was all about, and took us on a 40-year journey to transform the world into a better place. So how do we apply this to our own lives? Um, how do we apply this to our own lives? Before we do that, let me just share with you very quickly this final text. Text number 13. I know we're skipping a bunch of text, but let's just finish this off in the words of the Rebbe. This is what Rabbi Yochanan Menzake was telling the Baitusi. 
according to your view, it would have made more sense for there to have been an intense divine revelation from above, so as to bring them quickly into the land, i.e. to a more spiritual life, so that the people would enjoy themselves spiritually. The fact that he delayed them in the desert 40 years proves that Moses' true love for the people was that he brought them to do the work on their own. In other words, Torah, to implement it, to bring it into the world with their own power from bottom up, and that's the true definition of love. So how do we apply this to our own lives? I think very simply. Sometimes we ask God that things be easy. And we say, what's easy, no challenges. And then challenges hit, and we get thrown off. And we're like, why are challenges? Why the challenge? I don't like the challenge. I don't want the challenge. And yes, it's a valid response. It's a certainly a valid initial response to push back against challenge and to wish the challenge away. But as we learned today, sometimes the challenge is really what we're meant to be doing, really the way in which we can achieve what we're meant to achieve. The Bothusians believed in a perfect Torah, a perfect world, no challenges and whatever. That's what they wanted. That's what they believed in. And Judaism, I'm just going to call it Judaism, mainstream Judaism, does not believe that. Judaism believes that things are going to be difficult, things will be challenging, and we're going to have to step up and do things that we're uncomfortable with. And in that process, we grow. You know, when you go to the gym and you work out and it hurts, it's a sign of growth. It's a sign of progress. So when it hurts, it's a sign of growth. We don't ask for challenge, but when challenge comes our way, let us recognize that it's a growth opportunity. And let us indeed grow in those moments, grow, rise to the occasion, and make this world a better place. Oh, as my mom just wrote, no pain, no gain. That is perfect. Let me see what else we have here in the, in the, um, in the chat. Um, that Moshe loved the Jews so much that he was allowed to reprimand and warn them. Democracy was not first started by the Greeks. The Rabbi Yochanan said the other man straight that he actually, actually Moshe loved the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so just to address that last question that you asked, Mom. Yes, Rabbi Yochanan did ultimately set the man straight. In other words, what is true love? True love is not the absence of, of, of challenge. You know, how do you show that you love? So I'll, 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 I'll tell you a story. So I wrote a book, as, as you guys know, I, wrote, I think all of you, most of you know, I wrote a book on inclusion, special needs inclusion, through the lens of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings. And on many occasions, the Rebbe would tell people that one way in interacting with a family member, a child, someone with special needs, is you express value in someone when you give them responsibility, right? It's how do you show somebody that you, that you trust them? It's when you give them responsibility. That means that I trust you. That means that I believe in you. It's withholding responsibility that makes the other one think like, you don't, am I not trusted? Am I not as capable? Am I not, am I not capable? Am I not worthy? Am I not, um, you know, am I less than? So one way to empower, and this is not only true, again, I'm using, using the example of inclusion just because I, I, I recall the interactions and the letters and the communications that I, you know, that I put in the book, you know, from, from writing the book. But, but really what it's about is how do, you impl- how do you impart that message to anybody, somebody you work with, right? Let's say you're, you're a manager over someone. How do you, how do you tell them, how do you tell someone that you trust them? By saying, I trust you? No. Give them responsibility, 100%, every day of the week, right? Giving responsibility doesn't mean I want to hurt you. 
Doesn't mean, I mean, it could be, you know, somebody, you know, trying to, you know, uh, drive someone crazy. That's, I mean, hopefully not. But, but in a healthy situation, it's, I trust you, so I'm giving you responsibility. And what happens if you give someone responsibility and then you, you, you do it for them? You do the work for them? You know what that means? I don't trust you. I don't trust you. Responsibility is the greatest sign of trust. And so what Moses does is, as Rabbi Yochanan Zakeh says, he gave us responsibility for 40 years. He said, you're not going to be taken by God immediately into the Holy Land. You're going to go, and you're going to do the work for 40 years in transforming the desert, making the desert bloom spiritually. And that's your responsibility. And God says, and, and Moses says, I believe in you. God says, I believe in you. Moses says, I believe in you. And that's the whole purpose of Torah, that we take it, and, and God says, I trust you with Torah. I trust you to debate and discuss the laws and come up with the right answer, with your answer. And you know what? Even if it wasn't my answer, but I, I give you the tools. I give you the tools. I give you the brain power. Run with it. It's the most empowering message. And it's the most anti-Bothusian message out there. The Bothusians were, God doesn't trust us. God didn't give us anything. God didn't give us the tools, the responsibility. God didn't give us the, um, the faith. God, God didn't give us anything. That's the Bothusian perspective. Torah is up there, and we're down here, and that's it. And Judaism says, no, God loves us, God trusts us, God gives us responsibility and empowers us, and that's how the rabbi redefined love. You think Moses loves us by giving us vacations? Moses loves us so he, gives, he would give us a two-day holiday in a row? No, Moses loved us by taking us on a 40-year journey in the desert. That's true love. True love is not giving a vacation. True love is giving responsibility. True love is empowering the other. Are you with me on this? Yes? yes. I'm getting some nods and some yeses in person, yes. which is good. Okay. That's the, that's the end of the story. The end of the story is, what is true love? True love or true faith in someone is giving them responsibility and really empowering. Really empowering the other to achieve. And so we're empowered. And sometimes, you know, on the other end, they'll be like, oh, you... Why do you trust me so much, God? Wasn't that a line from Fiddler on the Roof? Wasn't there some sort of line like that in Fiddler on the Roof? Like, God, if you... Something, but couldn't it have hurt to something, something? I think give up more money. Yeah, something. No shame in being poor, but... No shame in being poor, but couldn't you have given... Yeah, something. No, no. I know we're the chosen people, but yeah. couldn't you have chosen someone else? There you go. Couldn't you have chosen someone Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good, good line. Yes. Right? Some say, though, there's always so, so, some say. There's always some say. Yeah. So look, we're never going to get away from the debates. We're never going to get away from, from the challenges. But it's a sign of trust. It's a sign of love and a sign of trust. So let's embrace it, embrace our mission, and do what we need to do. All right, let's take questions first from our online crew. Online crew, representing strong. I see Richard going for the mute. Mute, unmute. Yes, Susan. Okay. I hope I get this out the way I'm intending it. Every year when we read the Haggadah, that's where it says this thing about the day after. Oh, it's in the Omer. Yes. The day after Shabbos. It's during Pesach. Yes. It's in the Omer. Okay. Yes. We read that it's the day after Shabbos. Yes. Is that oral or written? The day after Shabbat is written. The Torah says you shall start counting the, count the Omer the day after Shabbat. And the rabbi said, Shabbat does not mean Saturday, it means Passover. And the Bothusians said, it doesn't say Passover, it says Shabbat. And the rabbi said, Shabbat could either mean Shabbat or Shabbat, a, a, a holiday, 
a rest day, which could also mean first day of Passover. So the rabbis interpreted it not literally. And how did they know? They had a tradition. And the Bothusians said, we don't believe in tradition. But more than that, the Bothusians believed you take the, you take the letters literally and you don't use your head. That's it. But why, but why does it say Shabbos in the first place? Oh, now you're asking a very good question. Excellent question. So why, if it really means Passover, so why is it misleading? Good. Because if you wouldn't open up the path to both Luthians, they wouldn't have any fun either. No, I'm kidding. I mean, that could be the answer. Um, you got to let, let a Bothusian be a Bothusian, right? You got to let the, the haters hate or the, the, error, the, the errors error. Um, that's one answer. But no, the Talmud gets into it. Why specifically use the word Shabbat? I'll give you another example. Why does it say three times in Torah, don't cook a kid, a kid goat, in its mother's milk? And we learn from the fact that it's repeated three times that it means not just a kid and its mother's milk, but any meat and milk, and not just cooking, but also mixing, and not just mixing, but also having deriving any benefit from that mixture. Uh, so whether it's cooking it or eating it together or, or even selling it and, and getting money from the combination thereof would also be problematic. Okay, I said a lot of things, but my question is, so if that's what the Torah means, why don't you say it? And the Talmud goes through it. There's elaborate conversations. I don't remember the answer when it comes to the Shabbat, so therefore I'm, 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 I'm shifting to another case, which I also don't remember the answer, but the point is, not, it's just not, I don't have it fresh in my head right now. The point is, all of this is discussed in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the books, and there are answers given, so it's not for right now, but it's, uh, you can look it up. You know what? I trust you. And I'll empower you. You look it up. <laughs> you, I'm giving you responsibility. See, that's love and trust right there. Friends, I model the lesson. You see what I'm doing here? I'm not just preaching. I'm practicing what I preach. And uh, yeah. So Susan, next week, next week you'll come back with, a, um, with an essay on why it is that uh, the Torah uses the phrase Shabbat when it means Passover according to the sages. I'm kidding. You don't have to. But, you know, if you do, it's, it would be kind of cool. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Hold on. Doreen said that, she, that she, she's like, yes. She, um, Doreen has faith in you. So she's now, she's now like. She loves me. She loves you. She loves you so much. There's a lot of love right now flowing all around. All right. More questions. More questions or comments from our. Richard. Richard. Just real quickly. Yeah. I, uh, yes or no. So I think last week you talked about the possibility of, of an error being a good thing, making mistakes a good thing, God setting us sometimes to fail. Yes. Did God set us up to send the spies to fail so we have it for 40 years? Oh, yes. The answer is yes. Yes and no. Yes, that's the truth, but no, I couldn't. Yes, that's the truth, but no, I could never say it in an unfriendly crowd. It says in Kabbalah that every sin is placed in front of us, and there is, even though it's against God's will, it's part of the master plan that we do it, and, and that's it. Now, don't go into the next thing saying, well, I'm about to achieve the master plan, so let's enjoy it while it happens. No, that's not what, you can't go into it that way, but once it happens, you look back on it that way. Anyway, it's a complicated thing. Things don't always, things are not always the same that, you know, in, in um, what's the opposite of hindsight? Foresight? Foresight. 
Foresight, foresight. It's a, isn't that a county? Isn't that a county in Oh, so you guys are making my puns. Hold on, let me get the pun in here. I can't even get the. Yeah, foresight. It's a it's a county in Georgia. Joking. So, huh? There's even Chabad of foresight, foresight. So yeah, so in foresight, you can't look at it the same way as you do in hindsight. So did God set the Jews to to err with the forty years? According to tonight's class, absolutely. That's how we made the desert bloom. Imagine if we went straight into Israel, who would bloom the desert? When I say bloom, I'm using that as a verb, right? Who would, who would make the desert bloom? Who would, you know, lift up the desert? Yeah? The, ca the cacti, and Israel has made, yeah, 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 Jews have made Israel bloom itself. Right, the cacti, the scorpions, the snakes, the lizards, like who's gonna make, who's gonna make a uh, blossom? It was, it was us, traveling for 40 years that made it blossom. So, Listen, the world is still a desert. The world is still barren enough that we need to, uh, to, to, to make it shine. That's our job. Our job is to be a light into the nations, a light into ourselves, a light into everybody. And uh, that's it. We got a responsibility. God trusts us. Uh, and, and maybe even more importantly, I trust you. I'm kidding. Not more important than God. But anyway, but I also trust you. And sending lots of love to everybody. So... On that note, let's, uh, let's officially uh, close it out for tonight. Thank you guys for joining. Don't forget, if you're in town and you want to be where the action and the cookies are, then you definitely want to be here in person because that is where, um, that's where the cookies are. So <laughs> we'll see you guys. Have a good night, Lila Tov. Tomorrow night, Resurrection uh, Part 3. We'll see you. Take care, everybody. All right. Yes. Yep.